Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. According to the Small Arms Survey, in 2017, Americans owned an estimated 120 guns per 100 residents. In other words, more firearms than people. The National Rifle Association, the NRA, is largely responsible for that, but how did the NRA, a nonprofit organization that started with an earnest interest in marksmanship and support for sensible state and federal gun control laws, turn into one that stubbornly resists all gun control laws today? Award-winning investigative journalist Frank Smythe joins us now to discuss his latest book, NRA, The Unauthorized History, in which he writes about the organization's secretive past and discusses the challenges facing gun control advocates today. It's published by Flatiron Books, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to our show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hasn't FBI data revealed that this past March was a record month for gun sales, with nearly 2.6 million firearm sales up 85% from March 2019? Is this another thing that we can attribute to the impact of the coronavirus? Well, certainly the coronavirus has fueled a fear that's been pulsing beneath the surface of the nation's political discourse for some time. This is now the forever I told you so event, at least to date, where gun activists can say, see, I told you. There are times we you need to be able to access firearms and ammunition for those times when either the government is unable to protect you or those times when the government may itself turn into something you, the people, need to defend yourselves against. And this, this uh, incident, this ongoing pandemic, creates the perfect backdrop for a rise in gun sales and validation of the ideology that's been driving the gun movement now for more than 40 years. But hasn't there been a recent increase in domestic violence and a decrease in non-domestic shootings? which would suggest that uh, this has nothing to do with somebody storming your home. No, this isn't about somebody storming your home. This is about people acquiring arms, stockpiling weapons in their own homes as they're sheltering in place and maintaining social distancing in order to be ready for whatever may come. And the problem is that this has, this bodes not well for any future efforts at gun control. There are several hundred million weapons in circulation in society today, uh, a very small group, less than 8 million people, own about half those weapons. But any attempt to confiscate those weapons will now be met with extraordinary resistance. And I think this will make it much harder for the gun reform movement invigorated by the St. Valentine, Valentine's Day shooting over two years ago in Parkland, Florida, to be able to continue ma- to maintain momentum. Don't all the other developed nations require at least one or more background checks and a secondary measure like a mandatory training course, rules for locking up firearms, and specific justifications for their purchase other than self-defense? What about well, in the United right. States? What are our laws? That's right. Every other advanced nation in the world, Canada, Western Europe, Japan, and other nations, Australia, and New Zealand, all have gun control based to some degree on the registration of firearms in the hands of civilian users. And in not one of those nations has this turned into some kind of tyranny or even even genocide, as many, as many members of the gun movement claim. 
At the same time, the United States is unique in the world. We're the only nation where it is so easy in most states to be able to purchase a firearm merely by showing a driver's license. And that is something that helps explain why the United States has consistently had exponentially more gun violence in this country than in any other advanced nation. Gun violence. The United States has nearly six times uh, the, the gun homicide rates of, of Canada, seven times that of Sweden, nearly 16 times that of Germany, and, and more than the rest of the world. Uh, is it because of our complicated system? Of how much of it does it vary from state to state? Well, it varies widely from state to state. If you are an unscrupulous arms trafficker, you could drive to West Virginia, spend $50,000 to buy $20,000 worth of weapons, and then distribute them uh, in New York City or Washington, D.C., or, or other states along the eastern seaboard for a great profit. So um, the issue in the United States is how easy it is to obtain weapons, really, with a driver's license from that state in most states across the country, meaning that it's, 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 guns can be controlled in states like New Jersey, New York, and Massachusetts, but they still manage to flow in from other states. There's no other advanced nation in the world where it's so easy to obtain a weapon as it is in the United States. And how many states actually have background checks, have the things uh, that, uh, that people have been calling for? Uh, 20 states, uh, as far as I know, participate in a, in a robust way with this nation's federal instant background check system. Most other states do not participate, and some have their own measures of conducting background straights. But uh, the rise of background checks in March, in late March during COVID-19, is true because it's compared to other figures of the same yardstick. But the background check system itself tends to underestimate the total number of gun purchases in the country at any given time. Well, Americans make up less than 5% of the world's population, and yet we own roughly 45% of all the world's privately hold, held firearms. And approximately 30 to 40% of all U.S. households have guns? That's a lot. That is a lot. And uh, there's gun ownership is more prevalent in this country than any other nation, uh, advanced nation in the world. Um, haven't other developed nations like Australia had success with gun control laws? Uh, in the case of Australia, I guess it was in, uh, in response to a really terrible mass shooting that killed 35 people in 1996. You know, they, uh, they have, and New Zealand is also after that, uh, the Christchurch massacre has outlawed uh, semi-automatic weapons, which for members of the NRA uh, is a cautionary tale. Uh, but let me also tell you, that what I wrote about is not comparing gun violence around the world. What the book, the NRA, the Unauthorized History, is about is the long, exquisite history of the National Rifle Association promoting marksmanship, gun safety, and hunting, and how all that changed in 1977 to make an unyielding embrace of gun rights that has since shaped not only the course of the NRA, but the of the nation when it comes to gun violence and gun policy. In 1977, what's been called the Cincinnati Revolt or the, the Cincinnati Revolution or the Cincinnati Coup. But let's back up a bit. Uh, didn't your interest on the NRA start in the early 1990s when you were looking at the crime bill and you were working on a piece for the New Republic that, that 
uh, was about the uh, first-time drug offenders who were being sentenced to, to decades in jail. How did the NRA come into that story? I was looking at the issue of mandatory minimums and nonviolent first-time drug offenders who then had the possibility of release from prison due to the safety valve that was part of an amendment in the crime bill. And what I learned is that the NRA was part of a group that was running ads without necessarily mentioning the NRA or even mentioning guns, claiming that Congress was preparing to release tens of thousands of drug dealers out of prison without mentioning that these were all first-time nonviolent offenders. And I wondered, why would the NRA, which is a gun rights group, be so interested in, in these first-time nonviolent offenders? So I started to investigate the NRA, and I got the Village Voice to send me to Minneapolis in 1994, where I managed to observe an NRA board meeting that was the start of an ethical struggle for power within the organization that lasted another five years and didn't come to an end until the NRA CEO, Wayne LaPierre, recruited the legendary actor Charlton Heston to rise up through the ranks of the leadership of the NRA and eventually be elected its president and then make the famous speech he made uh, for my cold, dead hands directed at Al Gore, which I think has set the tone for the nation's uh, gun rights movement ever since. Now, some people might be surprised to learn that the NRA was founded in New York City after the Civil War, 1877. Um, who were its founding members, and uh, were they anything, would, would they be surprised by what's happened to the NRA since? Oh, I think they'd be they'd be quite surprised. The NRA was founded by a group of men in lower Manhattan in New York City, nearly all of whom were active members of the New York National Guard, nearly all of whom had also served in the Union Army as officers uh, or non-commissioned officers during the Civil War, where they had seen tremendous carnage. And they were concerned about the possibility of future wars involving U.S. forces, most likely with European powers. And so they formed the NRA as a private initiative to improve marksmanship among both soldiers and civilians alike in the hope that this marksmanship would help U.S. forces in any future conflicts, which, of course, did occur uh, some decades later with World War I. Wasn't one of their original missions to advance marksmanship? And uh, uh, wasn't its original membership... Uh, sportsmen, hunters, target shooters? The purpose of the, of the organization from, from its founding in 1871 up through the 1930s, uh, up to the start of World War II, was to promote marksmanship, as you said. Uh, and at the same time, in order to, uh, to promote the capabilities of U.S. military forces and the possibility of future wars. The NRA made a pivot after World War II during the baby boom era to support hunters as the organization underwent its own transition from a, a, a group of dyed-in-the-wool, high-powered rifle shooters predominantly to an organization where hunters comprised three-fourths of the membership. And at the same time, the NRA grew exponentially during that period and really became the national organization or the beginning of the national organization that we know today. And it engaged in international shooting competitions. It was a very different kind yeah. of organization. Oh, absolutely. And it engaged in international shooting competitions as well as competitions first at a range on what is now Long Island called Cremor, 
and later on the shores of Lake Erie in Ohio on a range called Camp Perry. Now, other groups, the NRA was preceded, in fact, by the in this country, by the National Rifle Association of the United Kingdom, which was founded 12 years before hmm. uh, in London and trained on their range in Wimbledon. And the, uh, the NRA of the United Kingdom, like the NRA in India, which was also modeled on the same on the same organization. Today, both still exist. They're both still referred to as the NRA in their respective countries. But each of those organizations continue to focus predominantly on marksmanship and organizing shooting competitions uh, for shooters, both civilian and military, in their respective nations. So they're con continuing a tradition that the NRA at least modified by making gun rights its primary, its primary focus in the wake of 1977. My guest on Leonard Lopin at Large today on WBAI New York 99.5 FM is Frank Smythe. His latest book, The NRA, The Unauthorized History, published by Flatiron Books. Uh, what kinds of, uh, of uh, legislation did the NRA support in its early years? Well, the NRA took no position on gun rights. Oh, by the way, the NRA also claims that it's the oldest civil rights organization in the nation. This is simply not true. They call the themselves a civil rights organization. That's what they that's what they claim. It's on their website, and they and they make reference to this in almost every one of their meetings. And this is simply not the case. The NRA took no position on gun rights for its first 50 years, not articulating a position until 1921, 51 years after it was founded in response largely to what it started to realize were the effects of the Sullivan Law, a sweeping gun control law, the nation's first sweeping gun control law, passed in the state of New York in 1911. The NRA didn't reference the Second Amendment, we're calling it the second article of the Bill of Rights until 1952, and the NRA didn't raise the notion of the right to keep and bear arms, now it's modern-day mantra, until 1959. Over the same period, the NRA supported gun control in the 1930s during the Al Capone era to outlaw machine guns, and the, uh, which was fueling organized crime. That was 1934. And, and then there was a 19, second one that they supported in 1968. In, in 1968, the nation's second major gun control law, which outlawed the interstate sale of mail-order guns like the rifle that was tied to the assassination of JFK. And it was that 1968 Gun Control Act which radicalized uh, people in the NRA both and within the gun movement in general, which then led nine years later to the Cincinnati revolt within the National Rifle Association that forever changed the organization. But the NRA did not become an unyielding gun, gun rights organization. They not, did not even call itself even a civil rights organization until 68 and did not make gun rights its priority until 77. The key figures in the Cincinnati Revolt were Harlan Carter and Neil Knox. Who were they? Well, Harlan Carter was the son of a Border Patrol officer in Texas who himself had uh, a checkered past. He was tried and convicted of murdering the youth as a juvenile himself, an Hispanic youth along the border, in a dispute, shooting him in the chest at point-blank point blank range with a shotgun as the youth uh, challenged him holding a knife. He was later acquitted of that murder on self-defense grounds, became a Border Patrol officer himself, ended up taking over the Border Patrol and also becoming the Southwest Regional 
uh, director for the uh, for the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service. At the same time that he joined the NRA, began writing for the NRA's magazine, The American Rifleman, and then eventually joined uh, its board, was elected its chief lobbyist in 75, and then in 77, he was the man who was the father of the NRA's own internal gun rights revolution. The other man was a man named Neil Knox from Oklahoma uh, and from the Cross Timbers region of Oklahoma uh, in Texas. He worked as a journalist, a journalist who focused on gun issues and wrote for gun magazines like Guns and Ammo. At the same time, he was a meticulous organizer, the architect of the NRA's gun rights revolution, if you will. And it was Knox who organized more than 500 of his followers or, or of the gun rights movement's followers to attend the NRA's annual meeting in Cincinnati, where he had his own lieutenants spread out throughout the crowd wearing insignias of their federation and carrying walkie-talkies. So he could run the meeting through a series of complex parliamentary uh, motions, which were designed, one, to shame the old guard of the NRA for allegedly collaborating with gun control advocates like the National Education Association, two, to fire each one of them summarily right there uh, on, the, on the convention floor, and three, to replace the leaders of the NRA with themselves and their lieutenants for a full takeover of the organization. But had the NRA already been moving toward the right in some ways during the Cold War? Didn't it initiate a loyalty test for its members? Oh, yeah, but the loyalty test had nothing to do uh, with gun rights, Leonard. The loyalty test was because in the early 1960s, during the unrest of the civil rights movement, a number of white militia groups, groups some of which had a white power orientation but did not necessarily always articulate it, began to arise in different states throughout the nation. And this was starting to become a concern. The NRA was afraid that these armed groups could discredit their own organization. So the entire leadership of the NRA in 1964, including Harlan Carter, including both relative moderates as well as more, more uh, ardent hardliners within the leadership, all signed, a, all signed a statement denouncing subversive insurgent organizations and any government whose purpose it was was to overthrow the United States or the government of the United States. Now, the NRA had that loyalty pledge early in the Cold War out of concern of communist infiltration, especially during and after the McCarthy era. But this was in response to white, to right-wing white groups that were starting to appear uh, in the early 1960s. So it was not a statement for gun rights. It was a statement to try and keep itself. At that point, gun rights was, still, was just starting to percolate within the organization, but hadn't really had its full articulation yet. Who was Milton A. Rickford? Uh, Milton A. Rickford was the longest-standing uh, CEO of the NRA in its history through the 20th century until his tenure was finally surpassed by Wayne LaPierre uh, in 2014 uh, as the longest-running CEO. He was a man who had served in the Mexican expedition against Pancho Villa along the mm. border, not Mexico, who had also served in World War One and been decorated by both his nation and France for his role in the final Allied offensive of World War One, the Battle of Moussargon. And he also had served in World War II, where he was also decorated as he was the military provost or the chief 
military police commander responsible for all prisoners of war throughout Europe during the conflict. And uh, he was a man who stood up for gun rights at the same time, or for gun owners at the same time, was open to and supported gun control regulations, including the outlawing of machine guns in 1934. So he's an extraordinary man. And remember, the NRA is an organization that celebrates military uh, service men and women every chance it gets, right, at every one of its meetings. But the NRA, to cover up its own support for gun control, the organization's own support for gun control in decades past, has also buried the patriotic records and the legacies of many of their own leaders, nearly all of whom were military officers and many of whom were decorated war heroes, bona fide war heroes like Milton Record. And oral history of, of Record's work with the NRA was taken when he was 94, but it's never been published because of that? Um, and, well, that and, and was, I, right. How did so you get was, to read it? That was taken in, 19, in 1974. Because uh, Milton Record was such an important man and a brigadier general in the Maryland National Guard, who with that rank also served uh, in the, with the U.S. military in, in these various campaigns. Milton Record was someone who, who, uh, who was interviewed, had a great deal of knowledge about the NRA, including the nuances of why they supported gun control back in the 30s. And two senior NRA leaders went to his home when he was, when he was in his 90s to interview him. And then the Cincinnati revolt occurred three years later, and no one heard of it ever since. And Mr. Records, or, or Brigadier General Records, papers were donated by his family to the Hornbeck Library at the University of Maryland, where I, going through those records, including records pertaining to his own military service as well as to the NRA, happened to find a number of board documents, press releases, and other documents from the NRA of the era and that's where I found out um, uh, about this NRA oral history. So the NRA moved toward extreme secrecy uh, after the Cincinnati revolt. Uh, what were the yeah, arguments right. for doing that? Well, the NRA, for its first hundred years, it was a relatively transparent, non-governmental organization. Um, another um, another NRA commander, Merritt A. Atson, another bona fide war hero who won the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest award for valor, for his role in the Battle of Guadalcanal in the Pacific. He was somebody who had um, he, he was somebody who had um, who had done a great deal uh, and has a great legacy. But his but his background has also has also been buried uh, precisely because he supported gun control. Now, today, the NRA claims to have 5 million members, although nobody is sure if that's really true. But is that what makes it so strong? Oh, I think the, the membership of the NRA is one indicator of the organization's strength. But the real indication of the organization's strength is the clout that it has, the influence that it has in the courts, legislators, and executives throughout the country. The NRA managed to defeat all federal efforts at gun control after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012. The NRA similarly has so far managed to defeat all efforts at federal gun control after the Parkland, Florida Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, St. Valentine's Day shooting in 2018. So that is the measure of the NRA's strength. The NRA is the most organized civic organization in the country. No other country 
in the na- no other group in the nation from left to right has the ability to mobilize so many active voters upon demand to compel these voters to contact specific state or federal legislatures and tell them to vote for and against legislation in the way the NRA does. And that's really been the secret of their success for these past 43 years. In 2019, the Pew Research Center reported that 60% of all Americans support stricter gun controls. It uh, heavily weighted for Democrats and Democratic leading independents, 31% of Republicans. But among women, it's uh, 64%, 55% among men. In either case, we're talking about majorities. Yeah, and that also helps explain, Leonard, how the NRA has handled itself. The NRA has been reluctant to make strong gun rights statements uh, to the general public for many years, preferring to talk about problems of crime, to shift the debate or deflect the debate away from gun rights, to focus on things like fears of crime, or after the Rodney King riots, fears of mobs, or after Hurricane Sandy, fears of national disasters, and and, and, uh, impressing upon people the need for them to purchase weapons in order to defend themselves. And I think that's something that has, uh, that has, that has changed over the years and changed with Sandy Hook when Wayne LaPierre, the NRA's longest-running CEO, came out and said, well, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That was a shift because the NRA was finally putting its cards on the table for the entire nation to see, something the NRA didn't want to do because they were concerned about how it could affect Republican candidates running for office, and especially whether it would lose the support of a number of of what might be otherwise conservative-leaning women. And you'll remember in 2000, when President George W. Bush first ran for office, he was not endorsed by the NRA, mainly because uh, W. Bush was concerned that that could hurt his chances with women. That's changed now since the Sandy Hook uh, statement, as well as with the rise of Trump, where the NRA has gone all in with President Trump, and his relative extremism fits well with their their overall ideological worldview. Hasn't research from the Harvard School of Public Health shown that uh, that although the NRA claims that gun ownership in America makes our country safer, actually there are more deaths in places with more guns? Uh, there are uh, not just homicides, but also suicides, domestic violence, violence against police, and, and mass shootings. Absolutely. And the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, a very solid research organization, documents those kind of statistics all the time and also uh, uh, helps flag studies by universities, uh, think tanks, and others. There's no doubt that the numbers show that the presence of weapons increases, leads to increases in gun violence. But there's a belief among members of the NRA and other gun activists out in and outside the NRA that that doesn't matter because the comfort that they feel from knowing that they have a weapon in their home supersedes any statistics. In a way, it's sort of an antecedent to the anti-science movement that you've been seeing in recent years with President Trump as uh, gun activists have long discounted science uh, or, or social science when it comes to gun violence and the presence of weapons in order to pursue uh, their own their own their own views of the matter, which are much more personal and anecdotal and based on perceptions that rather than actual statistics.
So the NRA can claim that we're safer with more gun ownership, despite the fact that suicides in recent years make up 60% of U.S. gun deaths. And on average, assaults in the United States are three times more likely to involve guns than in other countries. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the ways the NRA does this, Leonard, if you remember the, the hearings in Congress after the Sandy Hook shooting in 2013, you had a number of people there who were, who were representing various groups, including some who were allegedly independent of the NRA. But a number, two of those witnesses, a man named David Hardy and another man named David Copel, both of whom were introduced to the committee as being allegedly independent witnesses, had both received uh, funds from the NRA, including uh, Copel, who by then had received a few million dollars in funds through his institute in Colorado from national NRA uh, foundations. And uh, no one knew that at the time. And that's one way the NRA is able to bring up independent experts who claim that more guns create less violence, and they seem like they're coming from some independent think tank when, in fact, they are, they are funded and have been funded for a very long time by the NRA. I'm speaking with Frank Smythe on Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Bang, he shot me down, bang, bang, I hit the ground, bang, bang, that awful sound, bang, bang, my baby shot me down. Seasons came and changed the time When I grew up I called him mine He would always laugh and say Remember when we used to play Bang, bang I shot you down, bang, bang You hit the ground, bang, bang That awful sound Bang, bang I used to shoot you down. We're back with Frank Smythe, whose latest book is The NRA, The Unauthorized History, published by Flatiron Books. Uh, Mr. Smythe uh, is an award-winning investigative journalist who specializes in armed conflicts, organized crime, human rights overseas, and the gun movement in the United States. In fact, uh, you, uh, when you were with Human Rights Watch, didn't you investigate the sale of guns to Rwanda by the French before the, the Rwanda genocide? Yeah, we, uh, I managed to obtain a, a document, which was a $6 million arms deal between the government of Rwanda and the government of Egypt, mainly for Kalashnikov rifles that were made under license at the time in Egypt, as well as for... I believe, 422-millimeter, 120-millimeter howitzers uh, that actually had been reported to an international arms control group, uh, as is generally required for weapons of that magnitude. At the same time that France had arms and advisors operating with Rwandan troops throughout the country, uh, not unlike what the Americans, what the United States did in El Salvador under the Reagan administration, at the same time, that the French were apologizing for Rwandan government abuses, uh, which, then, uh, which then led to the 
killing of the president of uh, Rwanda as well as the president of Burundi, and then the start, immediate start thereafter of the genocide. I guess uh, hypocrisy is not unique to the United States, although we see so much more of it here, at least these days. Uh, you mentioned that Wayne LaPierre has been the NRA's executive vice president since 1991. Um, just the executive vice president, why wasn't he made the president and what else can you tell us about him? Well, he's the executive vice president was created in a title created in 1925 during a scandal over the NRA secretary who was credibly accused of embezzling money. And record talks about that in the NRA oral history that's never been published, that they had the goods on him, so they, they forced him out or fired him. And then record was chosen to take over the organization. And until then, the NRA had been run by its board going back to 1871, and the president and the vice president were all elected by the board. And then others, like the secretary, uh, were paid for their for their role in keeping the books straight. And what the NRA realized in 1925 is they needed a full-time executive director. And so they created the title of executive vice president to respect the traditions of the organization, right? That's all that the, that, that really was. But LaPierre, when he came in, but he's still executive vice president, is synonymous with the CEO, and LaPierre often calls himself the executive vice president and CAO in NRA literature. He came in in 91, having cut his teeth within the NRA. He joined the NRA in 1978, just one year after the Cincinnati revolt. And he worked as a special education teach, substitute teacher in New York and Virginia very briefly, then worked for a Blue Dog Democrat in the Virginia State House uh, for another short period of time, then came in as a young man, uh, into the NRA in his late 20s, where he has been ever since. And LaPierre cut his teeth because Harlan Carter, uh, the, the father of the gun rights revolt within the NRA, the father of Cincinnati revolt, chose LaPierre to be not the chief lobbyist, but the NRA's point man on Capitol Hill in the 80s. And it was LaPierre who helped roll back or loosen parts of the Gun Control Act of 1968 that had radicalized the gun movement within the NRA, to pass something called the Firearms Owners Protection Act in 1986, which gave, uh, which gave LaPierre a great deal of credibility. Senator Orrin Hatch wrote him a personal letter calling him the captain yeah. for his efforts in helping to support and shepherd that legislation through Congress. And then five years after it passed, uh, LaPierre was made the NRA CEO, a position that he's held ever since. And I must say, he's an incredibly proficient man. He's not, he's not someone who's a good shot or is, comes with many real knowledge of firearms. And that's, he's well known within the organization as being a notoriously bad shot, in fact. But what LaPierre has is the capability of knowing how to read people and knowing how to read the labyrinth of a legislature to get things done. And the other thing he's done, Leonard, is he has learned – though he's backed off of that in recent years, but he learned how to say one thing to the American public at large, largely focusing on their fears of things like crime, and say another thing to the NRA base in somewhat coded language, though the intent is clear, that the purpose of the Second Amendment is so people can defend themselves against whatever may come, 
which may be crime, mobs, natural disasters, in addition to collectively defending themselves against a potentially tyrannical government. And that's been Lapierre's strength, and I think the secret of his success over the past 29 years. But there were reports uh, last year, or was it the year before, about (laughs) some financial hanky-panky involving Lapierre. doesn't seem to have hurt him. Well, it put him on the fence. He certainly he certainly suffered for that, and he suffered so much that he wrote in 2000, just this past fall, he wrote a piece where he referenced his own ties to Harlan Carter, the father of the Cincinnati revolt, which is an indication that he felt like he was on the ropes. And those accusations came from Oliver North, as well as from an African-American board member named Alan West, who himself was uh, was uh, left the military after he was implicated in conducting a mock execution of an Iraqi policeman uh, in violation of military protocol, uh, and later ran for Congress in Florida and won, based largely on that record. And Ted Nugent, the irreverent rocker who has clashed with President Obama uh, and others. These three men, led by Oliver North, turned against LaPierre, leaked allegations of his lavish spending, rafts of $20,000 Italian suits, Jets in the Bahamas, a summer of rent for his intern, at the same time that LaPierre's camp retaliated by leaking information about North's annualized salary of over $2 million, even though the NRA presidency that he has held or held is generally has long been a voluntary post. And LaPierre seemed like he was in trouble from the spring when all this broke uh, at the NRA annual meeting in the Wall Street Journal, the NRA annual meeting in Indianapolis, through the summer. But then in the summer, you'll remember you had the El Paso and Dayton shootings back-to-back one weekend. And they were so disturbing, they compelled President Trump to tell reporters that he was considering background checks. LaPierre then got on the phone and had two conversations, I believe, with President Trump, who then little more than uh, just days later over another weekend came out and said, well, I'm against background checks now, He reversing himself saying, well, they call it the slippery slope, and then everything gets taken away, which is, in essence, repeating the NRA's main ideological claim that even something as benign as background checks can be a slippery slope to gun confiscation, and that disarmament can lead to tyranny, if not genocide. And that's how NR, uh, LaPierre managed to regain his standing within the NRA, because after that he could tell members and his own board, which controls his fate, I get it done. I got it done in 86. I've gotten it done over the past nearly 30 years. And I got it done last year when we had when he got President Trump to reverse himself. So you can't afford to get rid of me because I'm the man the NRA has needed and continues to need. And I think he's been largely successful in that. The insurgency posed by North, West and Nugent is now largely, if not over, it's at least dormant. He writes a column called Standing Guard for the association's magazine, American Rifleman. Uh, Hasn't he written that there's no difference between Democrats and socialists any longer? Uh, The same Democrats are threatening the bedrock values of our society. So to preserve our values and protect our freedom, America needs the good guys to step up like never before. Uh, That's that's pretty much saying that the NRA has completely allied itself with, with the Republican Party. And did so before the Republican Party allied itself completely with the NRA. For decades, the NRA was willing to work with 
Republicans and Democrats, like John Dingell of Michigan, a big game hunter whose wife has been recently classed with President Trump. But John Dingell was a big game hunter and NRA board director for years. And one of the leading Democrats in Congress who was supportive of the NRA. Bernie Sanders was too. Pardon me? Wasn't Bernie Sanders as well, or just was he just a supporter of, oh, of oh, gun Bernie rights? Bernie Sanders' role was, was nowhere near, not even close to the, to the role that John Dingell played. Bernie Sanders just quietly supported uh, the notion of access to firearms because he knew his constituents in Vermont uh, mm-hmm. expected that. But he, he never got on the NRA's radar like John Dingell did. But then the NRA started to change and started to change really in the 90s after the uh, the actions uh, on Ruby Ridge, an ATF federal raid that ended uh, tragically with a number of deaths, uh, both one, uh, at least one ATF officer as well as several members uh, of, a, of a Christian uh, separatist uh, family uh, that was living on Ruby Ridge, as well as the Waco siege with the, uh, with the cult. Each of those raids were, were ordered over the presence of illegal, uh, fully automatic weapons. That helped galvanize the gun movement and helped turn the NRA against the Democratic Party, especially after the passage of the assault weapons ban in 1994. So the NRA, in a way, led, uh, uh, led this radicalization or, or preceded President Trump in, in its ostracization of the, of the dem- demonization of the Democratic Party. And one thing to keep in mind, Leonard, is that the biggest name the NRA could draw in the late 2000s and early 2010s was the erstwhile Fox News star Glenn Beck, both before and after he went on his his any his conspiracy rants against Jewish philanthropists. He was a frequent uh, keynote speaker at NRA national conventions. So was right. that was that Glenn Beck or was that Fox that was aligning no, itself Glenn with the NRA? Glenn Box, both before and after he got fired by Fox. But the NRA then did not never spoke at any in any major party's national convention, was never given the floor, was never given the main stage uh, that arises every four years until the 2016 Republican National Convention in Cleveland, when the NRA's then-chief lobbyist, Chris Cox, was allowed to speak uh, for the very first time. So the NRA has long clamored for mainstream legitimacy to be, to be not, on, not on the right-wing fringe, but in the center planks of the Republican Party, and now by allying themselves with the rise of Donald Trump through his presidency in first term, the NRA has achieved really cementing itself to the, to the Republican Party in a way that it never enjoyed before. According to Federal Election Commission data, in 2016, the NRA spent more than $30 million on behalf of the Trump campaign. That was over double the $13 million they had spent in 2012 to defeat Barack Obama's re-election. Uh, so, That's right. Um, they both, I think the it was NRA both Republican, but, but Trump, but they've really thrown in with Trump, haven't they? Although uh, the, rest of the, the rest of the 54 million they contributed in 2016, did it all go to Republican candidates? Oh, it all went to Republican candidates supporting Trump or people who were allied with Trump. The NRA both realized that they wanted to be able to say they were supporting Trump because they they expected, unlike most of the press, that Trump would win. And at the same time, uh, they wanted they wanted to have Trump and allied Republicans in power because they knew that would advance their agenda, which it has.
We mentioned uh, the fact that Wayne LaPierre writes for the American Rifleman, uh, but the NRA hasn't created a digital archive of the American Rifleman. Uh, why not? Well, because if the NRA created, you know, which is a multimedia empire and has been for a number of years, if the NRA were to digitize the American Rifleman Leonard, then this, what the story that I've told, the untold story of the NRA I've told, is all source to NRA documents, NRA magazines, uh, going back, the American Rifleman's case, almost a century, and other documents going back uh, nearly a century and a half. If the NRA were to digitize its magazines, then uh, the revelations that are in my book would be accessible to everyone. Because what I did is I purchased one of the largest uh, collections that I'm aware of of NRA publications uh, on eBay, and then went through those monthly magazines one by one, categorizing, uh, making note of different articles, different tendencies, different, different issues, different, different concerns. And my book comes directly out of that. So that's why the NRA thought, well, nobody will ever be able to investigate our past as long as we keep our magazines from ever being digitized so people can't find them online. And I guess what they weren't expecting was for somebody to go through and spend mm -hmm. about eight months reading and, and writing about what was, was found in their own magazines, which is what they the have really based on. They have, permitted, they have permitted two authorized histories, Americans and Their Guns, the NRA story through nearly a century of service to the nation. That was before the Cincinnati revolt in 1967. And then 2002, NRA and American legend. Um, so the, the, these are obviously uh, self-serving uh, books. Uh, but uh, what do you think that uh, President Trump's support of the NRA, uh, how has that affected uh uh, gun control legislation in this country. Let me let me deal with the authorized histories first. The 1967 authorized history was actually quite uh, was quite accurate and wasn't not uh, self serving because that was before ten years before the Cincinnati revolt, and that includes very nuanced language, including information about the NRA's own history, which was later omitted in the second authorized history published in 2002 or published um, some, 25, some 25 years later, including the NRA's own roots and the fact that the NRA copied all of its original plans, including its very name verbatim from the National Rifle Association of the United Kingdom. This 67 book remains a rare book, and you won't find it uh, at the NRA National Museum or anywhere in any NRA displays. The NRA really doesn't want anyone to know that that book exists. The 2002 book is a picture, a coffee table picture book, uh, with, with considerable text as well, whose forward was written by the late spy thriller author Tom Clancy. And what's interesting there, that is self-serving, what's interesting there is how the NRA attempted to rewrite its history in the 2002 version to cover up what was revealed in, in the first 1967 version. Now, in terms of President Trump and gun legislation, the result of, their, of the NRA's alliance with President Trump was the flip-flop on background checks last summer, which was the closest uh, President Trump ever came to considering gun control. That lasted less than a week until LaPierre got to him and got him and compelled him to do a complete flip-flop, which is not unusual for President Trump, but it's absolutely imperative for the gun movement. So what the NRA has succeeded in doing with their alliance with President Trump and other Trump 
uh, oriented Republicans in this era is shutting down the possibility as long as Republicans continue to control at least one House of Congress, any any real chance of any gun legislation being passed whatsoever, with the exception of the outlawing of bump stocks, which is a crude device that most self-respecting gun owners wouldn't even deal with or bother with, um, which really is more symbolic than anything else. But it allows groups to the right of the NRA, like their strongest rival, a group called Gun Owners of America, to come out and say, we're the real champions of gun rights because we we support the legalization of bump stocks while the NRA is willing to let them be outlawed. And it's really not an issue for most, for 98% of gun owners. Aren't you a gun owner yourself, uh, but the kind that the NRA calls a FUD? What's a what's a FUD? Well, a Helma FUD. FUD? Someone, yeah, I'm a FUD, but I own a signature non-FUD gun. A FUD is based on the Bugs Bunny era cartoon yeah. character and foil for Bugs Bunny, Elmer FUD, the hapless hunter. And a FUD is somebody who is a gun owner, usually a hunter, who doesn't support gun rights or doesn't think that that semi-automatic pistols or semi-automatic rifles like Glocks or semi-automatic rifles like AR-15s should be illegal. And I am a FUD with a, not, with a signature non-FUD gun because I believe uh, that uh, gun control uh, is, is the way to go. I, my gun was registered in New Jersey when I first purchased it in 1993, requiring two visits to the police station, two mental background checks, two criminal background checks and being fingerprinted twice. And as I write in the book introductions, I see that as, as, uh, as reasonable requirements for, my, for me owning a weapon like a Glock 19 or like a semi-automatic pistol. Um, and that's something that, uh, that, uh, that makes me a FUD because, I, because I, I support gun control. And I'm a paradox because I also own a Glock. Do you think there are many FUDs in the NRA? I don't think there are that many. There are not that many active FUDs at the NRA. I've been to a number of NRA meetings and gun shows and and uh, and on gun ranges, and it's hard to find many FUDs. If there are FUDs, if there are moderates in terms of gun control, they're not going to say much uh, about it uh, in front of uh, other other NRA members or other shooters at gun ranges, because that's the quickest way to get yourself ostracized and talked about. And people are generally have an aversion to that. And I also think that polls that claim that, you know, all these NRA members support gun control. I think that a lot of people are smart enough and inclined enough that when they, when they get a question from a pollster and they say, are you a member of the NRA? I think many people claim they are members when they are not. I am a member and have been for the past few years right, enjoying the benefits of membership. I never quote anybody. There's only, uh, in the book, there's maybe five anonymous sources in the entire book, most of which is dating back to my reporting back in the 90s with the Village Voice, some more recently, because I have spoken to a lot of people who I don't mention. But I really quote anyone. I don't burn anybody in the book, because the book is based almost entirely on NRA documentation. Now, a Gallup poll last year uh, showed that 50% of the public has an unfavorable view of the NRA, and uh, it has been plagued by a number of scandals. We mentioned uh, the financial corruption of Wayne LaPierre, also ties to uh, a, uh, a Russian operative who got a lot of attention last year uh, when uh, it turned out that she had actually 
try to make links between uh, Russian gun uh, activists and the NRA. Um, and yet it, it's, still, it's still a very strong organization. Is there anything that can that can hurt it? Well, I think the uh, the student-led gun control movement now, I think, has a great potential to uh, to change the course of the nation when it comes to gun policy. I think that's even though the NRA is still very strong, and this is going to be an uphill battle. I still think these groups uh, are mounting the strongest challenge today to the NRA that the organization has, I think, ever faced. And I think that um, if enough, if things were to change, right, and that's a big if, then I think the NRA could find itself all of a sudden losing ground. But we haven't seen that yet, so we'll, that, remain, that remains to be seen. But the Russian group is also interesting because for the past 43 years since the Cincinnati revolt, NRA leaders themselves have looked out and wondered, why are we the only such group in the world? that is in favor of gun rights like we are. Why can't we find any other groups? And they made up all sorts of reasons for that. And then by 2010, a group appeared in Russia called Right to Bear Arms, as if they had studied the NRA and studied the American gun movement and found the perfect name and claimed that this is an indigenous movement that's arisen in Russia. Now, anybody who spends any time looking at civil society in Russia under Vladimir Putin who's by any measure a despot and a dictator, would know that there are very few independent NGOs that can operate without being harassed by the government, unless they're for some reason sanctioned by the government. Frank, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, but thank you so much for being on our show. We've been talking with Frank Smythe, whose latest book is The NRA, The Unauthorized History, published by Flatiron Books. Thank you so much, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Kate Guan Allison, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to follow our show page on Facebook and Twitter or to visit our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. We are so pleased that you've continued to tune into our show throughout this pandemic. And we will do our best to keep bringing you live, insightful interviews every weekday afternoon from 1 to 2. With that in mind, we hope that you can join us tomorrow when Sammy Strain, Lala Brooks, and Brent Wilson will discuss a new documentary about doo-wop called Streetlight Harmonies. See you then.